to you, the nine to fiver, just making your way home. To you, the all night driver, out in your cab alone. To you, waiting for lunch break, as the minutes drag so slow. Take courage, turn the volume up, it's Labor Radio. Cable Community Radio is a proud sponsor of the Mayoral Candidate Forum on Social Justice, March 10th at 6.30 p.m. at Maranatha Church in Portland. The forum will be a public conversation with leading mayoral candidates about social justice issues in our community. The program will be moderated by Israel Bayer of Street Roots, Joanne Hardesty of the NAACP Portland Branch, and Jason Renault of the Mental Health Association of Portland. Again, that's the Mayoral Candidate Forum on Social Justice, Thursday, March 10th at 6.30 p.m. at Maranatha Church, 4222 Northeast 12th Avenue in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Carlos Chavez, and you're listening to a brand new podcast titled Profiles. Profiles is a radio project focusing on the topic of criminalization, the process from which people and behaviors are transformed into crime and criminals in our communities. Zero tolerance policies, school to prison pipeline, the warehousing of human beings. How did ideas like this materialize? How have they become such a standard? And how does this process impact our communities? This new series aims to challenge the idea and practice of today's criminalization process by offering perspectives that are not often included when policies like these are being rolled out. Our hope is that we can create a more thoughtful dialogue about the dilemmas that we face regarding criminalization so that our communities can have better tools to create new and healthy practices in the future that have a more positive impact on those who are most at risk. I start today's program with a few examples of what some of these policies look like from the eyes of those who've experienced the weight of these actions. Ezekiel is one of my radio journalism students who now resides at McLaren Youth Corrections. He explains one of his first encounters with police as a youth. I was about 11 years old. I was kicking in with some older guys from my neighborhood and they were involved in the gangs. But to me, they were just like older friends I, I kicked it with and hung out with. And we were on, I was with my older sister cause she was dating one of my homeboys or whatever at the time. And we're on the max and we, well, we didn't have, it was a simple thing as we didn't have a pain for transportation for the max. So we got off the max stop before they come out and they came off the max stop and put us over even though we got off the property. And then the gang unit came, the gang enforcement of Gresham, Monoma County, and then the sheriff department came and then Gresham police came and it was just, transit police was there. So it was about, I don't even know, like 12 cops just for three teenagers who didn't buy a ticket basically. And they, they put us down, basically did like a felony stop question us what we were doing and all we were really trying to do is go to the mall and go to the Lloyd Center and <laughs> and 
in my eyes, I felt like we weren't doing nothing wrong. But this this was my first uh, running with the gang enforcement, and I had a I had a homeboy there, and he was he's this this wasn't his first time, so he was kind of like sticking up for himself, and the police didn't like that, so they he was in handcuffs and they knocked him to the ground. And, and we all got mad, and then they kept asking me what gang I was from, my nickname, and this is before I was even into all that. And I could see all the hate in their eyes and how they were speaking to us, and I really felt harassed and targeted. And yeah, they were all white officers, and they were all a bunch of Mexicans. And that was my first experience, and ever since then, it's just been bad interactions. I never had a good, healthy relationship with law enforcement. and. The way they treated me that day for not even doing anything really wrong, as most people do, they buy a ticket for the max. I feel very disrespected and a lot of a lot of anger towards the police department. So, yeah, I think that was my first time with running into law enforcement. Gustavo is another student of mine who explains an encounter that he had with police at an even earlier age. Well, I was young. And we were always, uh, there was always complaints with the neighbors or just with a lot of people in general about, I don't know, us being too loud or being, you know, causing trouble because our family members were getting into fights, arguments and stuff like that. And ever since, we've always been harassed with by the police. Uh, but my real confronta confrontation with an officer was in uh, elementary school. I was wearing a rosary, and he told me that, uh, well, he asked me if I was a gang member, and <laughs> which sounds silly, I know. It's, yeah, gang of Jesus. But he said, uh, he told me to take it off, and I told him, no, this is my religion, so you, you're going to have to... This, this is going to be an issue. Like, I'm not going to take it off. And then, so he, they made a big issue about it, called the principal, called my parents, told me to take it off. Uh, eventually, I had to because my parents didn't speak English, and it was difficult for them to understand, not knowing what was happening. Like, they, they believed that I was, I was getting into trouble, and they started actually believing that I was a gay member since elementary, which I wasn't. And um, ever since, yeah, I've always been harassed because they always had that label over my head ever since elementary school. These two young men were profiled because of what was suspected as their affiliation with gang culture and because of what authorities perceived to be negative or poor behavior. Were these judgments being made prematurely? And from where were these judgments being drawn? Both of these youth eventually did choose to align themselves with this gang structure. Why would they choose to do that? When does that transition take place? And do these kinds of early interactions with authorities contribute? Guy Mataliano is a former gang member who's now a volunteer of mine at Morpheus Youth Project. He and I sat down for a very candid conversation about some of his own experiences. He offers his perspective on what that looks like. School is like, school is like where you learn to become who you are, you know what I mean? School is like where you really learn or you adapt, however you want to say it, like where you fit in this world, you know, what's your place in this world. And um, 
so like I don't know man when you start going to school and it's like you don't get respected or whatever it is I don't know when you when you kind of act out it's like I don't know you get respect it's kind of weird I'm not, I don't know why it works like that but so you start like putting yourself you know like making yourself an enemy to the to the teachers or principal whatever you know you like kind of put yourself aside like they want to be authority they want to tell me what to do or whatever like I'm just gonna do what I want to do you know and and it's kind of weird because like you get respected from is I don't know you get respected by your peers you know They're like oh this fool doesn't play that fool will square up with the teacher you know like I don't know and then that's the thing is like I feel like teachers and police and all these people they need to have like psychological background checks before they're allowed to be put in places of power because instead of handling that situation like I, I would if I had some cat coming at me and I was a teacher like I wouldn't even call him out in front of everybody I'd be like alright do you bro and at the end of the day I'd take him aside and be like what's cracking bro what's your beef bro what's your problem what's 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 going on in your life bro like why are you like this what is your problem well, you know help, let me, help, help me help you you know what I mean but it's like these people bro they're like they like they just as stupid. They just as immature. Like they high feet to retaliate right back. Oh yeah. Oh okay. I'm gonna expel you. I'm gonna expel your little ass, bro. I'm gonna suspend your little ass. Da, da 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 da. That's just making the problem even worse. It's like oh oh all right. So now yeah, you are my enemy. Okay yeah yeah. Okay cool. I got you. Like you know, it's not. It's, it doesn't help nothing. You know, and it's like the same thing with the with the police situation. You know, it's like bro, these cops bro are a gang. I don't care what nobody says. These fools are a hood. They're a gang. They are gang bangers, bro. And that's the way they come at you. Like, what's up, little homie? Like, you know, they don't... Like I said, there needs to be, like, a psychological evaluation or something. These guys need to be checked every so often or something because, like, these fools is on a power trip like a mug, bro. So, I, I don't know. I feel like... Um, I don't know, man. There's a, it's a, there's a hundred different things that really account to that, you know, that transition. You know what I mean? But it, it really, it'd be like, you a young kid, da-da-da, you, you already got problems in your life, in your life in general, and that's just like, gives you an arena to play them out, you know what I mean? To get it all out, and then, it's almost like, you, the attention's better than none, you know what I mean? So you start at a young age, you start acting a fool, you start getting more attention, it's like, you know, it may be the, not the best kind of attention, but you're like, yeah, at least these guys is paying attention to me now, you know what I mean? Oh, y'all didn't see me, y'all didn't hear my voice. You know what I mean? Well, and, it, and you know, from the per perspective of the school, their whole attitude seems to be, you know, of course, about control, about setting boundaries, mm -hmm. which, you know, even in just someone's home, you know, mother and father have to set those boundaries and they have to have a certain amount of discipline. Mm -hmm. um, but how do you justify, you know, kind of the extent at which they do that? Um, it seems like um, a lot of what I see is, you know, with this zero tolerance thing is just instead of trying to, like you said, address the problem, they're, they're looking at the symptom. They're dealing with the symptoms yeah. and they're, um, it's like they're giving, it's like they're giving you Tylenol instead of like, you know, that ain't gonna make you better, but it'll calm the symptoms down. You know, it's like that kind of same thing. They ain't looking at the root of the problem. They just looking at the action like, oh, well, this is what happened. This is what he did. Man, you're talking about kids, bro. You're talking about youngsters, bro. Even teenagers is like, you really going to hold that dude accountable for the actions he's done? This one don't even know no better. Obviously, there's a problem. There's, you know, it ain't never the student. It's the teacher. You know what I mean? The problem doesn't rely like a bad person or a bad child, you know what I mean? Or however you want to say it, you know, it's not necessarily their fault. It's the teacher. Who's teaching this cat? You know what I mean? Where is he learning how to be a, a human being? Where, who's teaching him where his place is in this world? You know what I mean? So it's like, I don't know, you shouldn't be like, 
I mean, there should be a lot more, a uh, lot more work done for that. You know what I mean? Like, whatever happened to that no child left behind? You know what I'm saying? You know, I don't know, man. It's like it's too much stick. You know what I mean? They use too much stick and not enough love. You know what I mean? I don't mean I don't know. I can't say. I, obviously, I can't speak for everybody or every teacher or anything like that or every or every officer as well. You know, I don't throw blankets over people, but. I mean, there's definitely a good amount of cats that's giving everybody a bad name out there for sure. Now let's take a step back and look at the broader picture regarding zero tolerance in and out of schools. What are some alternatives that we might be able to bring to the equation? In this section, cable journalist Delphine Crigenzo talks with Maria Scanelli and Robert Blake of Resolutions Northwest about what this picture looks like from where they stand. Maria Scanelli has been a restorative justice coordinator with Resolutions Northwest since 2011, attempting to help Portland youth, families, and schools integrate restorative justice principles and philosophy into practice and school and community policy. She's been an active volunteer with the Insight Development Group since 2008, facilitating restorative justice groups at Oregon State Correctional Institute and McLaren Youth Correctional Facility. Maria also volunteers as a facilitator for the Department of Corrections Facilitated Dialogue Program for Serious and Violent Crimes. Robert Blake started his work as a gang outreach specialist with the City of Portland's Office of Youth Violence Prevention in 2011. He was nominated for the Portland Peace Prize in 2013 and received a Community Service Award from the Portland Police Bureau's Gang Enforcement Team in 2014 for his tireless efforts in addressing the needs of our high and at-risk youth within the Portland metro area. So why don't we start, uh, you know, with just a definition. What is restorative justice? Um, what kind of, of alternative really does it provide to conflict resolution? Maria? So I tend to respond with a brief answer when people ask this, that restorative justice is simply bringing people together after a harm or a crime or a conflict to have actual meaningful um, interaction and amends to what happened. And that can happen either alongside the system or in, in, in place of it. So um, it's a chance for people to actually come together as people um, and address what uh, impacts happened to a relationship after that harm happened. Mm-hmm. And what do you mean it could be part of the system or, or outside of it? So in terms of the system, you can look at schools or prisons, correctional institutions. Um, so either there might be a sentence and uh, sentencing and charges are made. People are still going to be fulfilling those requirements to the state, but they're still going to meet and maybe have a restorative meeting with the people they impacted. Um, people still come together, which is not normally done in our um, criminal justice system currently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so same with schools. A student might still get suspended or expelled, but um, coming together to address what happened in a different way. Or that meeting could happen in place of the suspension or expulsion or charges being made. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, would you talk a little bit about the challenges um, that really schools encounter today with conflict resolution and really due to those zero, uh, zero tolerance policies, um, how can uh, restorative justice be an alternative uh, in schools in particular? Maybe Robert, you could. Yeah, share well, a I bit. think um, you know a key component of it is it takes that hierarchical piece out of it. Um, you know, it, it, it creates an even playing field. The youth get a voice, um, which is generally not not the case. 
um, and you know the staff really gets to hear where the student is coming from and get a better understanding of why the behaviors are being displayed. Mm -hmm. How do we get there with the schools? Like, what what in your opinion has been the rational for those zero tolerance policies? I think a lot of folks attribute Columbine and mass shoot school shootings to be the starting point for uh, school systems also implementing more zero tolerance policy. And a lot of that, I believe, comes from just a fear-based incentive, like let's motivate people by fear mm -hmm. and distrust. And so rather than trusting that, we can we can be motivated to make our decisions coming from a, you know, a healthy place. Um, we assume kind of the worst rather than the best. And that's where those policies are coming from, assuming the worst in everyone. So restorative justice is asking that we start assuming the best again and bringing that out in each other and giving room for that. And so let's talk a little bit about the students um, that are the most impacted uh, by the zero uh, tolerance policies, which very often results in suspension and exclusion. So, so who are the, the students who are the most impacted by those high suspension rate, exclusion, exclusion rates? Um, and how do you believe that restorative justice can actually support these students in particular? Well, um, I mean, data shows um, students of color. And when I when I speak of students of colors, I primarily mean African American, Latino, and Native American. Um, do you see those populations on a daily basis being removed from classrooms, being removed from schools? Um, what restorative justice does is it gets the school to take a look at alternative methods of discipline. How do we keep that kid in school? How do we how do we make sure that they stay interwoven within our school community and can be positive members of our community? And it's about staff and school communities addressing like how their assumptions and biases and judgments of each other are um, in affecting how we interpret behavior. What behavior is being interpreted as something that induces fear um, be from one student, whereas from another student it doesn't, and why? And so we are we see you know through data and experience that uh, students of color are are excluded for behavior that their white peers are. Um, practicing at the same rate, but they're the ones that are at, they're being kicked out for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's it's really um, it's really supporting the school in seeing um, uh, also the uh, institutionalized racism that mm -hmm. is hidden uh, behind some of these policies. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, then you know, what's the problem with sending the kids to school? You know, the, what's the problem with sending, you know, as, as, as a uh, re result, a uh, resolution to a conflict, uh, just removing uh, the student and just su suspending them? Uh, why is that problematic? I, I, I think it's, it's prob problematic on a, on a couple different levels. A, um, this student is, is being taken away from the opportunity to learn. Mm -hmm. um, but, but the second part of that is them... Um, you know, a lot of times they're going home to nobody, and um, their family is the streets. Um, then finding themselves falling into that prison of school to prison pipeline, which is um, very problematic for our society today. Um, by keeping them in school, um, we we see that uh, we don't have those those we don't face those issues on the streets. We have kids that are more willing to be a positive part of their community, and um, they're more engaged. Mm -hmm. I think it's also sending youth the message that uh, you're not wanted 
and you're a bad kid. We hear that a lot from youth that this this internal messaging from them of like, oh, I was a bad kid, I'm a bad kid. And it's like, no, you're not a bad kid. You might be making bad decisions right now, but that's what we're here as adults to support you in making better ones, right? So um, just, yeah, the sense that you make a mistake, you're out, versus you make a mistake, let's learn from it and come back and be with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's also, you make a mistake, therefore we don't want you around, right? right? Mm-hmm. But then what are the other alternatives for you? You're still a child, you still need adult supervision. Not supervision, but but support, as you say, mm-hmm. in, in, in learning. Yeah, we're mm-hmm. all growing up. Like, how do we learn from that when mm-hmm. things go wrong? Yeah. yeah. Um, so... Um, how about, yeah, you mentioned, uh, Robert, that school-to-prison pipeline. Could you explain a little bit uh, more what that is um, and, and, yeah, again, how the restorative justice can impact really this phenomenon that has been, you know, for years now really uh, sending a crazy amount of our youth, especially youth of color, as you've mentioned, uh, to uh, youth facilities um, and for incredible amount of years also. Oh, well, Maria and I both work on a project with the Multnomah County Juvenile Justice system uh, where we do restorative dialogues with um, youth offenders um, that have committed a crime within our community. Uh, We actually just facilitated a case here recently where um, this youth um, was able to take accountability for his actions. Um, He was able to uh, make amends uh, with the family that he caused harm to and um, minimize the, uh, the probability that he would end up incarcerated and that he probably will not reoffend. Mm-hmm. And um, and so how how does that happen? That that so many of our youth then then are going into into that that the prisons. There's a lot of data on it. I believe it's uh, youth who suspended three or more times is seven times more likely to enter into the prison system. And that was like what Robert spoke to earlier. You're being sent home. You're falling behind in school. You're going to be having all so many more reasons to be losing motivation. And those that are around to catch you are often others that are have often have also been kicked out of school. And so that's who you're now spending time with. And that's where you're getting more ideas from. Mm-hmm. So um It's easy to see kind of anecdotally how that happens, but statistically, um, I think Multnomah County did an exclusionary discipline report a few years ago that highlighted, it's available online, I believe, um, and it highlighted just how um, stark and um, telling of a story it is of what happens to youth after they're excluded and the uh, enormously high rate that that Portland has, which matches the rest of the country, but we also are are very high in terms of exclusion. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and so uh, the the work that you do also happens actually in the uh, youth facilities. Could you talk a little bit about how also important it is, even though you know after the offense has been, you know, uh, folks have received maybe a sentence for it, uh, to continue actually uh, that process of of, of uh, uh, closure uh, with that particular conflict. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you know we're talking about community at, in the at the end of the day. And um, I know a lot of our work is is in the school, but if we can take this into our juvenile justice system, even our adult system, um, it becomes community. It becomes shared language. It becomes shared practices. And then um, we all get a sense that we play a part in, um, you know, what our community looks like and the effects that it has on our on our youth. And it gives, um, again, I think we said before, it gives a chance to bring the person back to the experience. So, um, you know, Robert mentioned the the case we just did. Even even though um, 
youth were still interacting with the system, right? Um, they were at least able to have a forum where they could come together to see each other as people. And immediately, even in just um, sitting down and uh, in that room, it was amazing how quickly you could see the parties see that this was just another person. This was a young boy. And um, so much fear just left. Uh, and that was then later verbalized too, how that left for participants of like, I, I now see you as this young boy that I had built up up in my head is to be almost this feared, you know, monster, and how our system, when we keep each other isolated and separate, um, when you have it just that people are, you know, victims or offenders to the state and not a person with a name, it just it's kind of bringing the humanity and people back into the process. That was Delphine Crescenzo interviewing Maria Scanelli and Robert Blake of Resolutions Northwest. They offered alternative solutions to the zero-tolerance style of conflict resolution that still lingers in our schools and communities today. In this next section, we do something a little different. We go back to the McLaren Youth Correctional Facility for a discussion about what we've been listening to. KBOO sponsored a small listening party there where we previewed this new podcast with some of the students who helped to contribute to it and with outside community members. The idea was to continue this conversation with efforts to spread this dialogue farther into the community. We reflect on the interviews and on our own experiences, opening a candid conversation on the impacts of this criminalization process. The one that I felt that hit home for me was the one where the, that guy, a uh, guy or whatever, was talking about in school that, that whole one-up thing like, oh, I've already started this. I can't let the talk, teacher talk to me like this, so I gotta buck up now. And that, that whole thing is like a, it's like a addiction or something. I don't know. I, I remember that as a kid. Like once it started, like, no, I'm not gonna do what you say or what. It just always stuck with me. Now it's always something. No matter where I went, I always fell back into. Like how I I mentioned like in elementary school, how the cop like he came up up to me and was like, was like you know, take off that rosary because that's that's something that gang members uh, wear at the time. Like for my school, like, because when he when he confronted me, I was in fifth grade and I was going, uh, I believe I was going to my class. It was like in the morning too. And so uh, he just approached me, kind of, it was weird how he approached me and, and he just told me like, like take it off. Like, you, you know, that's uh, gang related. Um, are you a gay member, you know? He was just asking me questions, and I was just like, like, I was stunned, like I was shocked, like, why would you think that of me, you know? Because uh, to myself, at home, I was always a good kid. I was going to Catholic school, I was doing so much good good things, right? And then he approaches me with this, that got me, I don't know, upset. To this day, it gets me upset. Um, <laughs> now, you said that the police officer, now he approached you as you were walking to school, or were you already on the campus? I was already in the campus. All right, so that, like, for me, that's, that was the part for me. Like, you were going to elementary school. What was a cop doing at the elementary school in the first place? You know, and why was he in a position to be, to be, you know, scrutinizing kids that were, that were on campus at an elementary school? I mean, especially when it comes to gang-related stuff. You know, who, what, you know, how old were you at the time? Fifth grade, I don't know. Like, nine, ten. Yeah, ten. So pretty young. Who, you know? I mean, Carlos and I worked together, and I remember we went to registration night at the middle school, and there was an officer there in full uniform, 
The next day, the same officer comes to our classroom and the principal goes up to Carlos, makes a beeline for Carlos because he knows Carlos has a relationship with a number of young men at the school that we go to or that we work at. And he asked Carlos specifically to get in contact with this officer before the families, before the administration, contact this officer if you, quote, hear of anything going down. Like that kind of like setting up, they, by saying that, he, they had already decided what those young men were. And I think, and, and those young men to some degree like grow into that role because that's what they think they're supposed to do. That's what they're learning to do. It's a crazy, crazy thing. Well, I think that um, that like specific example that's just a way that <clears throat> that that the school is able to dehumanize that person, and I think that um, is how the criminalization process starts: is that you you make them so that they're nothing, or you know they make them you know they're they're basically labeling that kid from the very beginning like you're gonna be a criminal later on, and. It's, it's like if you tell a chicken you're a duck, you know, so many times, it's gonna start second guessing itself. Wait, am I really a duck? It's the same thing. Are you gonna, if you tell a youth, even if they're like a straight A student, like, it, are you a gang member or are you, are you feeling with gangs all this stuff? It's like they're gonna say, well, why not? Why can't that be now? I mean, that's all I've been told in my life. That last segment was a discussion that took place at McLaren Youth Corrections with youth living there and with outside community members. The idea was to reflect on the launch of this podcast and to open more dialogue into outside communities. Tonight, this program aired for the first time on KBOO Community Radio, and a listening party is being held in Outer East Portland, one of the communities of Portland being most impacted by this process of criminalization. You've been listening to Profiles, a brand new podcast being brought to you by KBOO Portland 90.7 FM. This podcast focuses on the topic of criminalization, the process by which behaviors and people are transformed into crime and criminals. We'll continue this series by exploring different areas of this topic that aren't often provided. We hope to offer a different kind of dialogue that helps to humanize the situation and to bring healthy solutions to the table. For more info, log on to kboo.fn. I want to give a shout out to the folks at KBOO for making this possible, along with Hope Partnership and the Oregon Youth Authority. Thank you to my guests for today's program and to Kat York and Delphine Crescenzo for their interviews on this show. This is a collaborative program brought to you by kboo.fm and Morpheus Youth Project. I've been your host, Carlos Chavez. This Tuesday at 8 a.m. on the Abe and Joe talk radio show, a supporter of Hillary Clinton, Moses Ross, and a supporter of Bernie Sanders, Keisha Thomas, will join us and discuss their candidates' ideas. That's this Tuesday at 8 a.m. on the Abe and Joe talk radio show on KBOO, Portland.
Cabo at the Clinton is our monthly film series at the Clinton Street Theater. This month, on Thursday, March 10th at 7 p.m., Cabo at the Clinton will show Salt of the Earth. Based on actual events, this film depicts a strike by Mexican-American mine workers in New Mexico. Against